0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 392. The night is dark and full of terrors. This show is ad free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And unlike pretty much everyone else, we're not raising our prices, which means you can get instant access to all the members extras for about the price of a latte from 2012. And thank you very much to joseph linda and martin for signing up already chaos the orderly rhythm of attacks and the steady wall of the war hedge had dissolved and it was replaced by a raging melee each and every life on the field was now balanced on the edge of a knife skill in battle played a role in who would live or die but survival mostly came down to simple luck. Too much was happening. There was no organization, and nobody would have been able to act strategically. Thousands upon thousands of men were locked into single combat, or at least they hoped it was single combat. But with your focus locked on your would-be murderer who was right in front of you, who was guarding your back? It was complete pandemonium. Thousands of worlds were shrunk to the length of a sword. Every mind focused on finding a way to survive just that moment. And then the next. And the next. And amid the cacophony of this battle, an English voice rang out. The king was dead. A full day of fighting. Friends and family lost or terribly maimed. The king's heroic brother, Girth, fallen in battle. It was all for nothing? The king had fallen too? It was too much, and the English army broke. They began to run. Ahead of them were the Normans, and that meant that the only route to safety was behind them. But behind them was a thick wood, as well as all of their horses. Their position on the hill, which had been their greatest protector throughout the day, now turned against them as night fell and as the army tried to escape the slaughter. Thousands of men, probably carrying around 50 to 100 pounds of weapons and armor, were now trying to squeeze between panicked horses, dense trees, and thick brush. And they were trying to do it all while panicking themselves. And this was where the real risk of death lay for the English. Medieval battles had their casualties, but it was the moments where the retreating army could be cut down from behind, the moments during the rounds, that was the moment where death became all but certain. It's counterintuitive because when facing danger, it's normal to want to flee from it, to put as much distance between the threat and yourself as possible. But by doing that, by opening their backs to the enemy and providing no resistance whatsoever, by becoming an army in a disorganized panic route, they become the running dead. And sadly, the Ferd, who was made of farmers and craftsmen, probably didn't know how deadly a route like this could be. So many of them fled as fast as they could. Some ran on foot, others leapt on horses, Some sought safety in the hills and woods of the Weald, leaving roads and paths behind them. Others took straight to those roads, probably hoping that the level ground would ease their escape. Many probably had no choice but to head along the only open ground ahead of them and just hope they could make it through it. This army, which had been so steadfast throughout the entire day, scattered to the wind but not everyone could escape. This battle had gone from sunup to sundown, and in that time, many fighters on both sides had taken terrible injuries, which meant that towards the rear of the English army, there must have been some form of a makeshift infirmary where the soldiers who were too wounded to fight could rest, keep safe, and hope for transport to treatment later on. But once the army broke, the men in the infirmary, who couldn't stand, much less defend themselves, were now left at the mercy of the Normans. And the Carmen tells us that as Duke William and his Normans rushed forward, the English begged for mercy and were executed. The French weren't taking prisoners. The Pope had ensured that there was no spiritual retribution to worry about. And so these knights had no use for mercy. We're told that thousands were cut down at Duke Williams' command, even as they cried out their surrender. In the tapestry, we see a Norman knight seizing an Englishman who is dressed in civilian clothing. The Norman holds the man by his long hair and is about to behead him. Elsewhere in the tapestry, we see badly mutilated bodies that were then stripped of their armor as the Normans set about first killing and then defiling the English. The Normans were surrendering to a bloodlust that was so consuming that their actions sound like something out of one of our worst horror films. Several stories mention a man named Gifford, who was one of William's own companions, and they tell of how he sliced off King Harold's thigh and rode around with it. And that's a strange thing to imagine. But in this period, it was a soft taboo to speak directly about certain things. And the word thigh was understood to mean another part of a man's body. His penis. Duke William and his leadership set the tone for the behavior of their army. And that leadership was engaging in sexual mutilation so we can only imagine what the men who were following their orders were up to. This chaos had turned to carnage, and the acts perpetrated by William and his army went beyond practical. It had become personal and sadistic. Even Poitiers hints at this brutality, telling us that the English who lay on the ground, terribly wounded and bathed in blood, began to crawl for safety, motivated by fear of what the Normans would do to them. And that fear was well justified. What William and his Normans were doing in that twilight hour of October 14th was a medieval war crime. Prisoners and ransoms, especially among the nobility, were common practice in medieval warfare in 11th century Europe. And this take-no-prisoners approach was brutal, even for this era. And as far as dick trophies went... That was right out. But the Pope had blessed this army and had promised to absolve them of all their sins. And in doing so, he had unleashed hell. And it's clear that William had no interest in restraining the savagery of his army. In fact, it appears that he encouraged it. Because he personally rewarded Gifford, the dick thief, with enormous amounts of land as a reward for his service. Because the grotesqueries carried out by this army wasn't a bug in the conquest, it was a feature. The leadership knew what was happening and were fine with it. And as the foot soldiers exterminated the English who were too wounded to flee, and executed those who attempted to surrender, the mounted knights were out in the field, charging after the fleeing Ferdsmen. And Poitiers attempts to speak glowingly about this Norman pursuit. He describes the knights as eager, pleased to strike the backs of the Englishmen. And he waxes poetic about how the countryside was littered with bodies, both in the woods and along the roads. He tries to put a spin on this and make it positive by saying this was, quote, a happy end to this famous victory. But he does add that, quote, many fallen to the ground were trampled to death under the hooves, end quote. Not even Poitiers could avoid how much death was being meted out at this point. And so as night closed in, and the English fled the field, and the wounded begged for mercy, the impression that we get from the sources, even the Norman sources, is that William and his army were carrying out every vicious and sadistic desire that they had. And we're happy that God was on their side, because with the murder of each wounded soldier and surrendering peasant they were out there spreading Christ's peace. And they knew they were because the Pope told them so. But while heaven might've been fine with this, here on earth, the Normans were still causing some significant problems for themselves down the road. You see, prisoners and ransoms aren't employed because generals feel like being nice. These actions are a tactic and an important one. Taking prisoners and treating them well and either releasing them or allowing them to be ransomed is a form of psychological warfare. It tells the enemy troops that they don't have to keep on fighting, that if they stand down and give you victory, they'll be okay. But conversely, if you take all hope away from people, if you engage in acts so extreme that they feel like they have nothing left to lose, you might end up facing an enemy that is losing, but at the same time is very much motivated to keep fighting. And they might even start doing things that they otherwise wouldn't. William and his Normans, by exterminating the wounded, the captured, and everyone else they could get their hands on, well, they just told the English that they had nothing to gain from surrender. They had no choice but to fight. And while the king was dead many of his thanes still lived and so did the huscarls and they knew these lands and actually some of the english who were running into the woods weren't running in a blind panic some of them were retreating tactically it was probably these same thanes and huscarls they would have seen that once the lines were broken the French cavalry, which had been effectively neutralized all day, was able to be used to its full effect. They could make flanking attacks. They could use their speed and maneuverability to separate the English soldiers. They could literally ride down and trample fleeing men. And so if the English wanted to survive the night, they needed to find a way to, once again, strip that cavalry of its effectiveness. And so this group of English soldiers weren't routing they were retreating and attempting to reform at a more defensible location and as they pulled back they could probably hear the sound of thundering hooves and metal striking metal they could probably hear the sounds of shouting and screaming men some in the distance some probably a bit too close for comfort it would have been nerve-wracking they did have an advantage that the pursuing French didn't. Like their fallen king, these Englishmen knew how to turn these lands into a fortress. And it wasn't even that difficult. They were in the downs. And the downs are beautiful, with steep hills, dense woods, and an abundance of streams. They really are stunning. Unless, of course, you're a cavalry army for cavalry who are facing an experienced infantry army the downs aren't a scenic vista they're a death trap and the retreating english knew that just down the way from the battlefield was a ravine with steep hills on either side far too steep for these normans and their little ponies to ride down and as night had fully fallen these hills would have been a moonscape of silvery slopes and bottomless black pits. Which meant, if the English could take position at the end of this ravine, the French would have no choice but to attack them head-on, and do so along a deep ravine that would have been treacherously dark and difficult to navigate. And it wasn't just dark. It was also covered in ditches and those ditches had been filled with stakes and then hidden by grasses and bushes. I don't know if this was an old defensive position or if it was something the English had constructed in the night before the battle, but the retreating English seemed to have known that there were traps in this particular ravine. And even in the darkness, they were able to quickly navigate around them. But the French cavalry who were chasing them down this path, had no idea. Instead, they, to use Poitiers' word, were happy. They'd just won the battle, and now they were having a grand time racking up easy kills that they could later brag about around the campfire. And so they thundered down towards this ravine. And as they entered the darkness, a few of the knights who were leading the charge just disappeared. Disappeared. Then more. Then the screaming started. In a fraction of a second, Frenchmen and horses were piling up in ditches lined with stakes. And still more of the triumphant cavalry, who were running too quickly to stop, were finding themselves stumbling in the dark over the tangled mess of bodies and tack, trampling their companions before ultimately falling into it themselves. By this point, some of the approaching horses who were in the middle of the pack would have began to panic at the sound of dying horses, and they would have dug their hooves in, pitching their riders right over the reins, and probably right into those same traps. While still more horses would have collided into the rear, forcing this line of cavalry forward into the very thing they were now trying to avoid, who then had no choice but to trample their injured, impaled, and dying comrades, all while the terrified and injured horses in the ditch were lashing out in an effort to escape. And in doing so, they would have tripped up still more of the cavalry. Orderic Vitalis tells us that they fell, one after another, until they were, quote, a struggling mass of horses and arms, end quote. The French remember this event as the Malfos. Latin, for the evil ditch. And on the far side of the Malfoss, or as I like to call it, the Bonifoss, were the English, who had now reformed into a war hedge. The fight was back on. And once again, the English had the choice of field and tactics. Poitiers tells us that the English were fully rallying now. And as Duke William and Count Eustace arrived on the scene, there were so many Englishmen returning to the fight that Duke William believed that fresh reinforcements had arrived. None of the sources describe exactly what came next. But Poitiers hints that whatever it was, it wasn't good for the French. The hills, ditches, and woods made flanking charges and quick strikes impossible. Instead, the knights were once again finding themselves fighting essentially an infantry battle, all while sitting down. It was awkward, and it wasn't what they were trained for. And it left them dangerously exposed to the huskarls and their terrifying axes. And honestly, that was if they even managed to reach the war hedge. And given that the ravine was booby-trapped with ditches and spikes... And given that all of this was happening in the black of night, not everyone would have made it that far. Poitiers tells us that the landscape completely neutralized whatever tactics and advantages that the cavalry provided. Duke William, Count Eustace, and their knights were doing all they could to break through the English lines. But they were finding little success. At some point, Duke William's lance broke and he continued fighting on, wielding the broken end. But this was a disaster, and it was turning into a bloodbath. And eventually, Count Eustace had seen enough, so he shouted in order to retreat. And the fifty knights who accompanied him turned their horses. Seeing this, William just about lost it, and he raged over the din of the battle, wondering what the f*** Eustace thought he was doing. And the count turned to his duke, and he shouted back that death lay that way. And as those words left his mouth, they were followed by a gush of blood. A weapon had come screaming out of the dark and struck Eustace in the back. He slumped over his horse, half dead. His companions closed in around him, and they dragged their count away from the battle. But William was unwilling or unable to back down. And so he pushed his forces on. Poitiers tells us that as William pressed his army against the English resistance, the Duke was, quote, superior to all fear and dishonor, end quote. And I get the bit about being superior to fear, but dishonor? What dishonorable acts did William carry out as he was continuing this battle and pressing his army into this death ditch? Poitiers doesn't explain it. But he does tell us that, quote, many Norman nobles were killed, end quote, in the fighting that followed. I don't know what William did to keep his men together, nor do I know what he did to overcome the Malfoss. But eventually, the English retreated from this second battlefield. The French were victorious, but they had paid a heavy price. And it appears that for William, that was enough. So he returned to Hastings, probably more than a little happy to have the safety of those ramparts and palisades. But out there in the countryside, and along the roads, and in the woods, there were countless life and death struggles taking place. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were running for their lives, or hiding in hollows and hedges, praying that the French patrols would pass them by. Countless fighters were laying ambushes and attempting to link up with any of their comrades that remained. All around Hastings, tens of thousands of people worked just to survive the night. And so tens of thousands of tragedies and triumphs were taking place that we will never know. And much of this night was probably maddeningly quiet. As everyone tried to evade detection, either to catch fleeing soldiers or to evade them, or to ambush them. And then suddenly there would be an explosion of noise when someone was spotted, or when a trap was sprung. It must have been terrifying. And while we don't have many accounts of this night, we do have one story that comes from Snorri Sturluson in his Saga of Harold Hadrada. Snorri tells us that Waltheof, the son of Seward and the ally of Earl Morcar of Northumbria, had retreated from Hastings with a large group of Englishmen, only to encounter a force of a hundred French soldiers. Waltheoff's flight from Hastings had taken him and his men right into the thick woods of the Weald, and so the trees were closing in all around them. And now, the Frenchmen were entering that very same fortress. And as they did so, their ability to move was instantly slowed. There were no roads or paths here, nothing to make traveling easy for a man or pony. This was the Weald at its most rugged. It was dense, and it was also dark. The trees would have blocked most of whatever remaining light they'd been using to hunt down the fleeing Englishmen. And so the French suddenly found themselves in a strange wood at night, barely able to see anything at all, practically blinded. Well, at least at first. And then just there in the distance, a small point of light appeared. Then elsewhere, a gentle glow grew like the sun was rising. But it wasn't morning yet. Then another light. And another. And another. The lights were all around them now. And soon they could hear the sound of crackling wood. waltheof and his men had set the wheeled, and the 100 men now trapped within it, on fire. And this moment is memorialized in a skaldic poem by Thorkell Skolason. Quote, Earl Waltheof the brave, his foes of warming gave. Within the blazing grove, a hundred men he drove. The wolf will soon return and the witch's horse will burn. Her sharp claws in the ash to taste the Frenchman's flesh." End quote. Hastings might be lost, but the fight continued. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media, and you can find links to all of our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.